You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you doing on Inauguration Eve? Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, guardedly optimistic uh, that the next four years will be better than the last four. Guardedly. How are you doing? Well, you've heard you- of you've heard of something called optimistic bias, right? Uh, I have heard that. In fact, um, I've heard that. Yeah, I have heard that. I've also heard that uh, pessimists they have shown are actually more accurate in their predictions, but optimists are happier. Is that is that true? Do you know? Um, I don't know if they're any happier. They're just more <laughs> maybe more deluded. I would be happier if I were opt- an optimist by nature. I'm not. Um, so you're are you in Maine now? By the way, I have relocated successfully. Yes, I'm in Maine. Now, isn't that the opposite of what people in your demographic typically do? It is winter after all. Isn't Maine like a summer place? But you're there. Are you there for for the duration? You're there for good. Not, I, oh not, yeah, it's a permanent move. Permanent move. Okay, this is a relocation good. for me. Got yeah. some nice woodwork. I'm one you there. of the, the many the, the many statistics. I don't know. Uh, there was an article. Uh, I don't know if it's in the online or just or in the print version of the Atlantic by Arthur C. Brooks about um, people finding happiness and well-being in in certain locations, and uh, I was introduced to the word topophilia or for sort of a love of place, and uh, hmm. uh, I'm just really more or less a, a case study of what he's describing of he's recommending people uh in this time in this time if they can if they have the wherewithal and, and the and the flexibility and work to uh to move to a place that you, you feel more um more at home in and or, oh, i or thought more, you were going to uh, say recommend that they all move to maine but at some point that would make maine a less pleasant place to be if everyone took your advice so no it's <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> no it varies um, based on based on personal predilection sure yeah. So that, I'm I'm here and things settling in. It's quiet and uh, it's pretty beautiful. Well, good. But uh, that doesn't change the fact that so, the, uh, that we're at this moment and and we're talking about biases. We're gonna yeah. So we're gonna talk today about uh, I think cognitive biases. But first, let me try to situate us. This is the third in a series called the Dharma of Bob, a phrase that you came up with after you kindly uh, suggested that my worldview was worth fleshing out. I'm Bob, um, and I uh, was all too happy to 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 sign on to that proposition. Uh, and so, so the first first in the first installment, we talked about the logos. That's a concept in ancient Greek philosophy. Also shows up uh, in the Bible in the Book of John. Uh, the phrase in the beginning was the word. Uh, the word word is a translation of the Greek word logos. Okay, so, can that, I interrupt for one second? But- sure. Let me just interrupt you one sec. Before we dump into, dive into the, 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 the key features of the Dharma of Bob, how would you describe in your words maybe the, the overarching uh, sense of what we're referring to as Dharma of Bob? I can, and I can take a stab Ooh, at that. but I, I, That's I, a hard one. Why don't you take you, a stab? You, you thought it up. Uh, I, <clears throat> I, I blame you. Well, let me see how this sounds. I, it, it, the reason I came with the phrase, I think, you know, I think you have a worldview informed by um, uh, certain uh, observations in in a variety of different fields that converge, and it's a worldview that both tries to describe the way things uh, have come to be, uh, sort of descriptive in terms of how evolution has shaped 
um, uh, species and particularly in humans, the psychology of our species and um, combined with sort of elements of, of game theory, you describe how in as part of this logos or the, the evolution of, of, of existence, things are moving to dynamics of greater and greater um, interdependence um, and um, uh, interbeing where, where outcomes are mutually uh, correlated, meaning if there's a if there's a problem in one side of the world that affects everybody on the other side of the world as well as as things move into greater and greater interdependence and complexity and um i think part of your worldview is that embedded in the mind are sort of programs that were effective at one time and place from a perspective of natural selection but in the current environment they those very programs uh now pose a threat to continued existence because they 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 pit us into conflict and tribalistic stances that, that threaten the whole development of, of being, in a way. Does that sound at all I would say that's, uh, that's fair. The, um, I mean, one reason I was eager to do this series of conversations is that I do feel that there's a, a kind of coherence to my worldview, but it's not so easy to say what it is. It's, I, I mean... Um, and you've captured some of the central elements, uh, for sure. I mean, maybe we should say by background, I realized I didn't, uh, we haven't really, uh, introduced you, although by now, um, people may be familiar with you. You and I met at a meditation retreat. We have a common interest in Buddhism and meditation. You are a yoga teacher, um, and you've done a lot of meditating and you've, you've done a lot of yoga and we've done a lot of talking about these things, but, that, that, um, in the end, uh, kind of mindfulness meditation and Buddhist philosophy is an important part of my worldview as well. Um, my last book was, was about that. Um, uh, and, um, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, so well, let, me, let me just say one more thing. I, I think in a way you, you can, you can say that my view of, um, I view history as kind of pushing us toward enlightenment. In other words, getting us to a point where not that we will necessarily become more enlightened, but but that if we don't, the outcome will be very bad. It is incentivizing us uh, to become more enlightened. You know, I think in various senses of that word, uh, I think ultimately, you know, kind of in the Buddhist sense, not not that I think that true enlightenment will ever be attained by, uh, say, me or the average human being, uh, strict enlightenment in, in, the, in the Buddhist sense. But I do think moving toward the Buddhist ideal of enlightenment, which in a way is just a kind of hyper-clarity about the world um, or, 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 or extreme clarity about the world, uh, is something that's very much in our interest to do. And, and, and I my view of history is that it's been driving us toward this point so inexorably, uh, really going back to the beginning of, of biological evolution even, that um, that, that in turn, uh, I, I think it's not only a useful practical framing of our, of our predicament, but that um, it, it raises questions of teleology, of larger purpose, whether this, whether this all could be serving some larger purpose. I don't claim to know the answer, but I'm more open to the possibility than some people who, who um, who kind of read from the same scientific texts as I do. 
like, you know, uh, people who like me emphasize evolutionary psychology or have a fundamentally kind of, you might say, materialist view of history as I do and so on. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the, the Buddha Dharma that we share, uh, is in some sense, I think part of your prescription. It's not the, 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 the panacea, of course, but it's, one way of of uh, coming to both see more clearly and then and I, I think we, we both see it as a way to transcend some of these uh, these impulses that that are fueling the problem of the predicament we're in mm-hmm yeah um, so I mean, so there's an almost a some 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 authors describe it as an a kind of an inner revolution of of, of psychology that uh, I think, I sense you you trying to advocate in your own way. Yeah, I mean, my, my thumbnail summary of, uh, in a way, the heart of, of Buddhist, the Buddhist idea is, uh, or at least well, a, a part of the heart, or, or a heart of the part of Buddhist idea or something, is uh, the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is that we don't see the world clearly. And um, I... I uh, it's in that context that I thought of enlightenment, but I, but I, I also think um, that when we talk about, as we are going to, cognitive biases and how we can overcome them, I think that is moving toward more clarity of vision in a way that will be good for us, good for the whole species, good for the world. And I also think that that uh, you know, like mindfulness meditation in particular, that part of Buddhist practice can help people. Um, Overcome cognitive biases uh, of, of some kinds, in particular, and see the world more clearly. If that's, and I don't know how much we'll get into it today, but as I was thinking about that, I feel like just in in, in the interest of transparency, I feel like I'm gonna I'm I'm, I'm not a very good example of that personally, <laughs> and that and that I think, uh, and when we met, I was just sort of getting introduced to some of the research about cognitive bias, and I I held my own optimistic bias, thinking that. If more and more people would meditate, then um, then the sort of a, a sufficient percentage of a pop of the population might start to transcend those biases, and and uh, we would move forward in a way. Um, but in my own case, I feel like even though I've known about these biases, I still find myself very much under the sway of them. And and uh, in, in not to to overpraise you, but I feel like. A lot of times I read your writing and particularly in your newsletter, I, I, I see how you, you sort of call out other people falling into these traps. And I realize well, that's in, easy in, to in do. It's writing, calling I, out yourself. I, I find, that, I, it's calling out yourself. That's hard. I don't you know, get credit I, I, for calling out other people. <laughs> <laughs> right. But what I'm what I'm what I find is I, I, I see how I fall into these biases and and I'm, I'm a quote unquote meditative enthusiast. So it's it's no by no means a a um, a simple uh, quick fix to to these issues. Um, no, it's really they're really deeply I do, I, ingrained the, the the cognitive biases and, and and I think it takes a discipline of some sort or another uh, to make inroads on them. Uh, you know, leaving aside the the, the task of, of completely overcoming them. Yeah. And I would just add like a small qualifier potentially to how you said like the Dharma helps us see things, see the world more clearly. Um, you know, it, we could, 
I might say it's it's helping us see the world of our experience more clearly. You know how we how we experience the world, and and in, that includes seeing oneself more clearly. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the, the the seeing of the world is is not separate from also de- refining and developing an understanding of what oneself is or what it's like to be well, oneself. And in fact, I mean, uh, seeing the continuity between oneself and the world is even uh, by some accounts part of. Um, Getting closer to enlightenment, you know, part of the Dharma. And of course, as we know, uh, ultimately seeing the continuity as, as, uh, so pronounced as to call into question whether the self exists for that, for that and other reasons calling into question whether the self truly exists. But we need, need not get into the, the, the not self, uh, doctrine of Buddhism. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, th- th- to me, that's one of the most valuable things. Like on a meditation retreat, when you're really getting into it, like like day four or something, is becoming so aware of how your thoughts take shape, and and that's where I think meditation can be helpful with cognitive biases. I, I think you become more aware, in particular, of the way feelings can kind of warp your thought or your uh, perception. And I think that's kind of the underappreciated thing about what are called cognitive biases because the term cognitive suggests, oh, it's like computers, cognitive, right? It's, you know, and whereas what biases the cognition, I think, is typically subtle feelings in ways um, we can talk about. I mean, you see this with with probably the most famous cognitive bias. We've talked about this a little, I think, in one of our past two conversations, but... Most famous cognitive bias is confirmation bias, I think. Um, just the idea that we are, uh, we, we, we embrace information consistent with our, our pre-existing beliefs, ideology. We tend to reject information not consistent with it. And if you pay attention, I think you'll see that the way that starts is you see information like not consistent with your ideology or something. Um, and uh, it makes you feel bad. You want to you want to kind of push it away. I mean, I had uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure if this this will be posted like this week or next week or what. But in any event, uh, everyone will still remember the January sixth uh, Capitol Hill uh, riot uh, when it's posted. And you know, after that came out, I was listening to uh, after that happened, I was listening to a right wing podcast, and they're trying to push the idea that like, uh, you know, this is Antifa. And they found this one guy named Sullivan who was left wing, but had been in the Capitol, blah, blah, blah. And they're saying, see exhibit A. And I, I, I could kind of feel myself recoiling at the prospect of that. And then later when I saw, um, on Twitter that, uh, somebody pulled up a, uh, like a, a Twitter chat from like November where people in Black Lives Matter were saying, this guy claims to be one of us, but don't, don't buy it. He seems, he's suspicious. He's like a right wing plant or something about the same Sullivan guy. And I found myself like embracing that made me feel good. And I, and, and I found myself going around repeating it because, you know, and, and I think it's probably true, but in this case, but, but that's the way these things work. Information, uh, you know, you, you, uh, that, that confirms your pre existing belief structure feels good and that's what you embrace it for the same reason you embrace people who make you feel good you know and the same reason you keep your distance from people who who feel bad is the reason you reject information that feels bad so becoming more aware of those feelings 
which mindfulness meditation, I think, does, can do, um, I think can help you guard against that particular cognitive bias. That's one example. And in, in general, cognitive biases, um, as I was trying to think through this for the talk, uh, they are, they're more or less, I think the word heuristic keeps coming up. They're sort of information processing shortcuts um, in the face of, of say, overwhelming complexity of, of, of data to, to, to analyze and, and sift through to, to come to a, a clear perception of something. I mean, some like, are, but, uh, you know, I was going to, can I just say, I mean, I know you mentioned, uh, you mentioned before we started taping an article I have to read, which is apparently by, by Dan Kahneman in, I guess, foreign policy about how cognitive biases, uh, can make pe- people unbalanced more hawkish. Uh, I think that's certainly true. And I'm eager to see which biases he emphasizes because, you know, his famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I think it's called, um, it it yes. does it does dwell on some of the cognitive biases whose um that probably do exist by virtue of their value in just simplifying our processing of information but i don't think confirmation bias is one of those and and and, and i think the uh the ones that i think are most important and contribute most to kind of tribal conflict and war uh namely confirmation bias and uh, attribution error um I think, uh, evolved for uh, a different reason, or at least not only because they help us simplify the processing of information, uh, they evolved because they, 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 they make us inclined to argue strongly for our interests, to believe that the pursuit of our interests are right in some sense, so that we can argue that we're morally entitled to pursue our interests and so on. So, um, uh, I, I, I think, uh, I guess I, I don't see I don't see the contradiction there, and, and, and maybe clarify this for me because it would seem that the difficulty in in opening to 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 data that creates cognitive dissonance is that it then forces you to face the complexity of what's there, and the confirmation bias sort of short circuits that because it, it, like well, what you already well, mentioned me, through, just, through through a feeling like oh this this feels right so let, let me, this let me, has, has to be let me just put it this way. If you, if I, if we were an asocial species, okay, if we didn't, if the way humans lived their lives was like, uh, we just, you're born, you go off in the forest, uh, by yourself and you find food, you see no other humans. And then I guess at one point you see another human and you procreate, but then you go back. In other words, you just don't have a social life. There would still be reason, uh, to have biases that streamline our processing of information. It, there's still a case for processing information about your environment efficiently, okay? But uh, you would not you would not get uh, confirmation bias. I, I don't think that that would not make sense. Confirmation bias exists for the purpose of our believing we're right when we argue with people, okay? In a social context and. Uh, I mean, that's, I'm not saying science has proven this, but I think among the most plausible of, of explanations that have been put forth by like evolutionarily minded psychologists, and, and I wouldn't say Dan Kahneman is especially evolutionarily minded. He's certainly cognizant of evolutionary psychology. Um, you know, 
so, so, so that's, that's what I'm saying. And, and I think it's important to understand we're talking about biases that evolved in order to, uh, help us win fights, whether rhetorical fights, uh, or rhetorical fights that turn into physical fights. Um, they help us argue for our interests, whether or not our interests actually have merit in a moral sense. Okay. So they, they actually exist to warp our thinking about moral questions. Okay. That's what they're for. Okay. According, because evolution doesn't want to, doesn't want to make us like moral creatures. It, it, and it doesn't even want us to see clearly. It just wants us to get genes into the next generation. Of course, I put wants in, clo- in quotes. It's not a conscious process. Uh, but it, it's an important, it's, a, and, and this isn't to say that, that a given bias couldn't do both things, that it couldn't have evolved for two reasons. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's like, uh, teeth do more than one thing in some animals. They're designed as weapons, but also designed to help them eat food, you know? Um, that can happen. But, uh, uh, I, I do think it's worth understanding because it gets back to the question of how hard it is to fight these biases. They are designed to fool us into thinking we're right more often than we are. Okay? And naturally, if they're designed to fool us, it must be hard for us to become sufficiently aware of them and sufficiently determined to root them out to really succeed in overcoming the biases. Right. So, with the example of confirmation bias, what do you... What and you said it helps us win arguments. Uh, how how does that play into the sort of the uh, the the agenda of natural selection? In, well, in, it's in, like say you're arguing a, over over who deserves more of the food from the hunt or something, and you say, well, you know, I was the one who spotted the giraffe, and I was the one who did this, and I was one. You know, there are these experiments that show uh, in team efforts. Um, people overestimate, like one study, they, they took uh, academics who had co-authored papers and they would say like, okay, three people co-author a paper. What percentage of the credit do you think you deserve for this paper? And then they add up the percentages and the average is like 140% or something. Okay, so clearly somebody's wrong here. They're all wrong. They're all somebody's wrong, right? I mean, there is a, a, a generic human tendency to exaggerate our responsibility for good outcomes and understate our responsibility for bad outcomes. In a way, like Donald Trump is like a parody of a human being, okay? He's not like a completely alien being. He's just a really revved up example of a human being. Everything good that happens is his doing and he's not responsible for anything bad that happens. So and that, that both those biases were mentioned by Kahneman in the article, sort of an excessive optimism, uh, the illusion of control, overstating okay. how much control you have in a scenario. Um, there was a similar okay. study he mentioned about uh, drivers. People uh, surveyed about their driving skills. All eighty percent of drivers think that their driving is above average. Um, that kind yeah, of there, thing. There's a lot of realms where the average person thinks they're above average. It's the, the Lake Wobegon effect. Yeah. He also names, you know, the exaggeration, exaggerating the evil intentions of adversaries. That's, that's attribution bias, uh, or attribution error, the misjudging how adversaries perceive us. 
sort of the inability to sort of to, to yeah. actually probably a cognitive empathic position about seeing how how we are um, miss the overly sanguine uh, response when hostilities start. That's sort of the optimistic bias. Like we'll just there'll be a quick quick war, go in and clean up. We'll be out, in and out. No one gets hurt. Um, and then an over-reluctance to make concessions in negotiations, which I, and I thought that one was interesting, is that when an adversary concedes something, there's a tendency to have a reactive devaluation of it, which, he's, as he wisely notes, comes up in international conflict as well as marital disputes. <laughs> yeah. When the, the other concedes something, we tend to defat, like we don't, we don't, we don't see it on the same level as if we concede it. Like I said, I'm sorry, but your apology is nowhere nearly as significant. Nor, nor oh, you're totally seeing that in America right now. The, um, uh, it's time, it's time for healing. So why doesn't your side admit <laughs> that you're, the, you're the whole problem? Um, y- y- you know, I mean, after all, we admit it and it'll be some trivial thing, right? Um, it, that's really a huge problem right now. Um, the the, uh, the attribution, the thing you mentioned, overestimating the evil of uh, somebody. That is, um, I mean, attribution error fully, full, fully um, kind of articulated is a little more complicated and subtle like that. But it does does lead you to believe. Yeah, in essence, uh, it leads you to believe. Uh, that your enemies are more evil than they are, and in particular, I think that the uh, the evil is more intrinsic. I mean, that that is really part of their nature um, more than it is, and that's a really interesting bias that I think we should uh, spend some time on. And, and uh, not necessarily now, if you want to take the conversation somewhere else, but I also think it's related to to how um, some deep Buddhist uh, concepts. Uh, are kind of uh, you know intersecting with with developments in in psychology. Um, I think uh, that's um, it's an example of, of I mean the whole idea of thinking that that your enemy is evil, like like this sense that there's something like in them that evil is you know it's it's in them. It's this essence uh, is an example of of not taking seriously the Buddhist idea of emptiness, which is the idea that nothing actually has essence, and this kind of sense we have of essences is uh, is mistaken. But I, I, we probably shouldn't get into that doctrine too much, but I, I, uh, it's an example of where I see an important kind of merging of Buddhist uh, thought with modern psychology. Right, and I think we, offline, we had sent temper, sort of uh, flagged moving in that direction, talking about that and maybe sort of conceptions of enlightenment um, Beyond, like, go, as we go forward in this conversation or in the next conversation, um, but the, the the thing about uh, attributing, say, evil or or a fixed um, uh, quality to an opponent or uh, someone, some other, what's what's really what I find kind of unsettling about it is that the people can be be told even about the sort of the the explanatory context that might make someone say something in a particular way and still disregard that sort of environmental ex- explanatory variable. So there's an example that Kahneman gives where a bunch of students were asked to write about the political views of Hugo Chavez. And, and, and they were arbitrarily handed the positions that they were supposed to write about. So some were pro and some were against. And then afterwards... Uh, 
other participants in the study were asked to judge or evaluate the political inclinations of the authors, even though they knew they were randomly assigned to an arbitrary position. And those that were pro-Chavez were, you know, they, they attributed, um, you know, progressive ideals, uh, progressive, progressive ideals on those, on those, uh, students and the, the opposite for the other. So even that they know, even right. though they knew the science, the, the study was set up to, to have certain things coming out of these people's mouths, they, they then still, uh, uh, imbued right. the other with those, with those, uh, positions and, and, um, incli- in inclinations. So yeah, it's, it's no, a really pernicious thing. It's really automatic. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, maybe we should go ahead and, and, and flesh out attribution error a little. Now, I, I think we, we talked about this in one of, not, not one of these like Dharma Bob conversations, but earlier, you know, you, the, this series in a way dates back to when our mutual friend Michael Brooks died. You knew him much better than I did, but, uh, uh, I had been scheduled to be on his show to talk about cognitive empathy, which is just kind of perspective taking. Um, when he died. And, uh, so you and I got together and talked about that. Uh, we also had a great, uh, chat with his mother during the same conversation. And that, that's all on YouTube. But, um, uh, the, um, uh, we also, and during one of the, we did a couple of live streams as a result of that. And one of those, we talked about attribution error. But let me, let me just quickly repeat that, um, so originally they thought that attribution error was this thing where we tend to overestimate how much of people's behavior is due to their intrinsic nature and underestimate the role that circumstance plays. So like you're in a checkout line, the person in front of you is rude to the to the checkout clerk and you think that guy's a jerk. Whereas, you know, for all you know he just had a bad day, found out that he had just found out that his Spouse has some horrible disease. Who knows? Um, and, and the thinking was we tend uh, to over-attribute things to uh, dispositional factors. That is what kind of person you are. And under-attribute things to, to uh, situation or circumstance. Then they realized it's actually a little more subtle than that. The further study showed that um, when it's an ally or friend of yours, okay, if they do something good, you're more inclined to attribute it to their nature, their disposition. If they do something bad, you're more inclined to attribute it to their circumstance. Like, oh, they were just under peer group pressure. You know, they're not really bad. Whereas if it's an enemy and they do something bad, you attribute that to their nature. You know, yeah, oh, it's Saddam Hussein. Of course, of course he won't. Uh, he's stalling on letting the weapons inspectors in. That's because he's a bad person, whatever. Um, uh Actually, that's a slightly bad example, so never mind. But um, the uh, um, but but the the pattern is if your enemy does something good, then you say, well, you know, he was just trying to impress these people who are he's not he's not really a good person. And, and one good way to see this is if you reflect on your views, like the last time you had a romantic rival, somebody who was vying for the affections of the same person you're vying for. That's a classic case where like you are committed to to finding them to be bad people and and it it, it's it's hard to get you to concede that some good thing they did wasn't just showing off or something like that um so that's attribution error um and i think and 
do, do you have a sense or what's your sense of how that would have emerged in the evolutionary record? You know, Oh, b- because again, well, um, it helps you make the kind of arguments you want to make. It helps you make the kind of arguments that it's in the interest of your genes to make. I mean, remember, our species, alone among species, evolved in a context of arguments about who deserved what, okay? Um, I mean, arguments, not just like between groups. I mean, you know, people talk about the psychology of tribalism. But it isn't the case that all of these things evolved in group versus group conflict. They could have. Sometimes they did. But even within hunter-gatherer society, I mean, the kind of society that that that, that would have been the context of most of human evolution. Um, uh, I mean, pretty much all the important uh, part, I would say. Uh, um, you know, there, there, there would be arguments uh, between people about uh, who, uh, you know, who deserves the food. Who, who, who had betrayed somebody and therefore owed them some kind of restoration? Um, who, who had, uh, who had, who had disrespected the other and therefore deserved to be beaten up by the other person and their friends? Um, there, there are actual arguments and, and there's also value in just believing that you're right because it, it steals you for the fight or whatever. Um, so part of that is that once someone is your enemy, say they're vying for the same mate or they're, you know, they have some interest that truly conflicts with your kind of Darwinian interest, then there is value in being able to convince yourself and others that they are truly bad, okay? They really need to be expelled from the group, you know? Um, again, you know, I, I, I think, and again, this is, in some sense, this is conjecture, but... uh it's well-founded conjecture, and, and I and I and I and I think uh, you know people who study these things would say it's it's uh, uh, you know uh, deserves to be considered part of the explanation for uh, this cognitive bias, um, and and so again you know you got to understand we we were we were designed to be confused in our in making arguments okay we, in other words we were designed to depart from a truly objective perspective when we're making arguments. That's natural selection engineered the confusion into us because certain kinds of confusion helped get our genes into the next generation at the expense sometimes of the genes of our rivals and enemies. Let me see if I can get this question out. So as you're describing it, 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 particularly when you use the word, the phrase winning an argument, um, it, Really, obviously, speaks to literally uh, the the a level of evolution where where language is a is situated as a um, as a main feature of of, of the dynamic. Um, yeah. But I, I one my question is: Do the do you think these biases have a you know pre linguistic form? Where, particularly because they are, they seem to be, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert here, so this is why I'm yeah. asking this, but they, they, because they seem so wired into the sort of the affective, uh, parts of our biology and, 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 and sort of dump their assessments in term, into us as feelings, intuitive feelings, I would, I would think that they, they must 
or they likely have some antecedent in a, a, a pre-verbal kind of advantage. Uh, Do you know yeah, what I'm getting at? Uh, uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, if you look at chimpanzees, and again, chimpanzees are not our ancestors, you know, uh, we didn't evolve from chimpanzees. Rather, we and chimpanzees have a common ancestor back, I don't know, six, eight million years ago or something, and we both branched off. At the same time, chimpanzees uh, do, they're our closest relatives, chimpanzees and uh, bonobos, or, or so-called pygmy chimps. Um, the uh, uh, th- Those two are equally closely related to us. And, um, you know, in chimpanzees, it has been reported, at least, by people who study them for a living, like Franz de Waal. Uh, well, let me just say that even though they're not our ancestors, they are examples of the kind of behavior that could evolve in a pre-linguistic species. So our ancestors could have been, could well have been in some respects like chimpanzees. And, and you know, Franz has, has reported, and I think uh, others probably, that... Um, you see, for example, a kind of moralistic outrage. You know, they have reciprocal relationships, okay, where they have alliances. This is this chimp is an ally of that chimp. They exchange favors. They exchange social support. And he's he has seen cases where um, a, a chimp had some a, chimp A had supported chimp B. They had a relationship, and then chimp B, in a time of of chimp A's need, does not come to the aid of chimp A. And he has reported seeing what looks like kind of moral outrage. Like, just if you look at the gestures and the behavior, it's like, wait a second. I thought, you know, I deserved this. I thought we were friends. I thought, you know. So it certainly, that would be an example where, of course, we articulate the thought, right? I thought we were friends. I did this thing for you. Uh, but you can you can well imagine that the reaction as governed by feeling preceded in evolutionary time our ability to articulate it and presumably was driven by a feeling. And and so I think, uh, on the one hand, I think that is an, you know, reasonable uh, speculation about why feelings govern these things is that some of these, uh, the rudiments of some of these uh, reactions uh, go back to a time before we, our species was very smart. At the same time, you can see how it also makes sense for feelings to continue to be kind of fundamental in the shaping of the thoughts because, uh, I don't know how to put it. It, it, it helps the bias to escape our detection. In other words, you, you That's want That's what the, I was just thinking, that yeah, we're not, we're not conscious of these things. Right. You want the right. person to have the illusion of clear thought. I mean, natural selection wants us to have the illusion of clear thought. And so it makes sense that feelings, it would continue to work well, you know, from natural selection's point of view, so to speak, even though natural selection's not conscious, um, for our, our thoughts to be subtly governed by these feel, feelings. And again, this is like, you know, I submit that in day four of a meditation retreat, if you uh, think about an enemy and something bad they did, yes, you, you may think, yeah, that's the kind of person they are in keeping with attribution error, but I think you will be more likely to suddenly become conscious of the fact that what preceded that thought was your emotional reaction to the person, you know, 
I mean, surely, I'm sure you've had the experience, Josh, on, on a meditation retreat of being much more aware of how your feelings are guiding your perceptions of people. And, you know, and these are reactions you normally wouldn't even think about. You, you don't have the feeling like, well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, the phrase that I, I don't know if this is like how accurate this phrase is, but I feel like when, when meditation is going well, your one's awareness at the kind of the surface of consciousness becomes much, much more magnified. So you just sort of see more of the, the, the way uh, thoughts present themselves and feelings present themselves to your mind, to your to your conscious mind. Like you, you, you see them literally bubble up, like um, you know, gas bubbles, for example. Um, and and in doing that, you know, it's not. You, you, last time we had this conversation, you you said that meditation was hard, and I think one of the things you were getting at was that. Sitting and actually sitting within and feeling those difficult sensations that correspond to the feelings and thoughts is not easy because it's, it's something we're normally just you know, mm-hmm. unconsciously reacting against and moving away from to avoid. Um, but when one sits still and you're, you're more, you're, you're, the, the exits of distraction are more or less closed. You know, the, the laboratory of your, your looking suddenly is impinged in a much more vivid, uh, sometimes excruciating way <laughs> to mm-hmm. the extent that these, these feelings, uh, uh manifest. Yeah. I, I, I once, mm-hmm. uh, sat, um, I guess a two week, I think this may be my longest retreat with a teacher named, uh, Akin Shino. Do you know him? It's, uh, I think his name is Mark a, Weber, but uh, he, he's uh, he's kind of um, uh, a German guy. Yes, and, and he's and he's uh, he's part of the uh, secular Buddhist crowd, I think. Very much, with uh, Stephen Batchelor. In, in fact, he and Stephen Batchelor have founded some kind of institution in England where they teach. I think he and 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 some other people. But um, he he said in the course of this retreat during one of his Dharma talks, like. Something like, I quote this in, in my, uh, my Why Buddhism is True book. Um, something like, uh, every thought has an emotional propellant. And that's the kind of perception you're more like, I, I mean, I think he's right. I, I think, again, feelings shape our thoughts. Uh, and, and so it makes sense that he's right. At, at the same time, it, it takes a very, Acute level of mindfulness to always be aware of that. I mean, you talked about getting to the point you're, you can kind of see your thoughts bubble up. I mean, for me, that is a rare, I, I rarely get close to that level where I, I feel I can kind of see the thoughts floating in as opposed to, you know, I mean, our common, our common assumption is that, well, okay, there is this CEO self and it's me and it creates the thoughts. I'm projecting the thoughts, you know, one, whereas, you know, it kind of in keeping with the Buddhist idea of not self, um, you can sometimes on a retreat, as you suggested, it, it just kind of st- stand back and it's like, no, the thoughts just kind of drift in from places like, uh, they show up and then I embrace them as my own. Um, and his idea, which I think is right, is that you can think of feelings as kind of being the things that help push certain, give shape to certain thoughts and push them into your consciousness. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I, again, I, I, um, I don't know how 
how absolute I would make a statement like that, but I, I it, it seems to to be. I may have overstated his absoluteness. The the quote is in my book, but um, uh, it was something like that. Mm-hmm. So, but sort of getting back to the the evolutionary antecedents to these biases, um, presumably, you know, if 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 they evolve to maybe simplify it, but if they evolve to win arguments, then. Then that would mean they have an advent, they're advantageous in an environment where zero sum outcomes play into, uh, the sort of the development or the evolution of natural selection. Is that right? Uh, fundamentally, yes. I mean, you know, conflicts often in the largest sense are non-zero sum, because like, uh, you can do so much damage to each other in a fight, for example, that you both lose, uh, in some sense. You both regret the fight. Mm-hmm. But, um, by and large, you're right. It, it is the, it is the zero sum, uh, dimension of the interaction or component of the, of the interactive dynamic, uh, that, that you can say is, is responsible for, is most responsible for the, for the bias. Yes. The cognitive bias. And then if we flat, fast forward to now, the environment, is, is, would you would you agree with that one characterization of the, the change in the environment is that the games were, the, the current environment uh, is playing are much more non-zero in that they're, they're more interdependent, more complex. Yeah. Et cetera. No, yeah, this was, I mean, the, the point, uh, part of the point in my book, non-zero was that I mean, two things. You can, again, view even biological evolution, but certainly human history, broadly speaking, which is to say the trajectory that got us from hunter-gatherer society to the brink of globalization, um, as an unfolding of a kind of a logic driven by an interplay of zero-sum and non-zero-sum dynamics. And one thing that has tended to happen in the course of human history uh, as part of this trajectory is that more and more people are involved in non-zero-sum relationships with more and more other people at greater and greater distance. So, like, you know, pandemic's a good example. Turns out that uh, bad news for China is bad news for us, right? They, they, they you know, uh, bad news for England, you know, they have this new, new variant of the virus, bad news for us. Uh, we, we are, um, uh, and good news, vaccine uh, can be good news for people uh, uh, at great distances. So our, our fortunes are more and more correlated. There are more and more cases where an outcome can be win-win or lose-lose, even among people at great distances. And yeah, I argue that uh, that's a natural outcome of history, especially as driven by technological evolution. And that now we've gotten to a point where there are all kinds of non-zero-sum games involving uh, the human population broadly, like it's in all our interest to avoid nuclear war. Uh, or most people's interest, you know, it's it's in our interest broadly to do something about climate change. It's in our interest broadly to do something about pandemics. It's in our interest broadly to uh, restrict uh, the development of biological weapons and on and on and on. So, yeah, we have all these non-zero-sum problems that it's in our interest to do something about. And yet, uh, cognitive tendencies... Well, that evolved in a, with, in a very different environment are getting in the way. 
Right. Yeah, we're all impregnated with these biases that are getting in the way. Um, so that gets that's that's sort of in the in the in the in the the discussion or the layout of Dharma of Bob. That's where, I th- as I said before the call, um, it, it seems like this is the pivot from just having a descriptive worldview to 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 injecting some prescription. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, <laughs> what's your prescription? <laughs> Sign up for a meditation <laughs> retreat. I mean, yeah, uh, it, it's it's. I mean, there are lots of pres- prescriptions. There are prescriptions at the policy level, right? Like arms control agreements and things. Um, uh, restore funding for the World Health Organization. Um, but, uh, but well, actually, you know, and I, I th- there was, there was that book that, that Michael Brooks actually turned me on to back, I don't know, in 2008, um, Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass right. Sunstein. How, how to, um, how to influence people kind of, right? Yeah. And, but their, their point was that, uh, a lot of, like, kind of getting back to this issue of, of attribution error, which, uh, takes, takes, put, puts blame on the person as, as possessing a particular intrinsic position or view or, or, or ha- possessing a particular attribute and negates the, the effect that the environment plays on their decision process. Um, I think their book was, was looking at how to, to design environments that kind of minimize or mitigate, uh, the tendency for these biases to, to sway people in hmm. ways that are, that, that, Get people to act against their own self-interest, huh? You know, like sort of just like they, they use they use the phrase choice architecture um, to get at that idea of environmental design guiding guiding choices. So if you go to the supermarket and you know a lot of snacks and junk food are laid out at eye level, and and the healthier and more nutritious food is at, at either low or sort of difficult to see. Lo and behold, more people tend to buy the junk. And so it's not that they would do that normally. It's just that it's, it's part of the, the, the environmental nudge. Um, and it, it does seem like there are things that could be done, uh, to, to shape how, like the, the choice architecture that people are engaged with to minimize, uh, kind of some of these, these more pernicious biases. Yeah. I mean, you know, social media would in principle be an opportunity. Because, you know, we kind of face a problem of tribalism at two levels. Like within our country right now, there's so much political polarization that we couldn't formulate coherent policy, even if we knew what good policy would be. And then B, there are antagonisms between nations that make it hard for us to see what good policy would, 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 what good international kind of policy, international governance policies would be. So be nice to do something about the psychology of tribalism and Social media is an example where, I mean, it's a tricky area because government getting involved in regulating a platform where free speech happens or often free speech happens is, is obviously a tricky thing. But one thing you can certainly say is that, uh, left to their own devices, these social media companies have created algorithms that are not good for us, right? That, that would be like if I wanted to create a Twitter or a Facebook uh, that was better for society, you know, I would just start by by uh, saying, okay, um, you feel like re- retweeting this or sharing it? Okay, click share. And then in three minutes, uh, a box will pop up and say, are you sure? And if you click yes, then it will be shared. I mean, that that would help a little. 
you know, give people time to cool off or maybe even actually read the thing they're sharing. But they're not going to do that because that would that would hurt their revenue. Um, right. So there are nudges that could be um, made. There are, again, difficult issues involving free speech and the government's proper role. But um, I could get I could get into this whole thing. Uh, but uh, I mean, I would just like to see them give. And this would be fine, I think, a fine role for the government to give us to give the user more control over the algorithm. Like force them to be transparent about their algorithms, allow third party companies to uh, develop interfaces based on that allow you to, to tweak the algorithm so that, you know, like I want, you know, I don't know, I want to see less. uh I want to see less rage. I want to see, you know, I don't know, just little sliders of, of one kind or another. Um, right. But that's uh, that's getting may, may, maybe off topic, but um, something I, I would like to see. Well, I mention it only because uh, I, I feel like particularly with, with uh, the book, uh, your book, um, Why Buddhism is True, your, your, the emphasis there is on the individual – Sort of conf- learning how to confront the, the 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 feeling of that 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 sways or drives these biases, and um, as a way to kind of remedy remedy their effect. Um, but it's not just only at the level of the individual that that that, that we could we could look to shape a, a different future in a sense. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are policy level things. There are individual level things. I think the good news is that often the changes you would make in your own handling of your own psychology that would be for the good of society are also conducive to mental health. You know, it's like when you see Twitter at its worst, how many people are really doing themselves a favor by participating in that? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, they may be doing themselves a favor in terms of building up more Twitter followers. And that's pro- that's a problem. That's uh, but uh, is it is it is it good for their mental health? Are they happy? Are they you know, are they increasing their life expectancy? You know, um, that's another question. Well, then the, the other and then connected to that is the. The resistance to change, period, which I think is um, addressed or, or, or kind of explained a bit by the, the bias of uh, loss aversion or aversion to to losing anything that you t- take to be normal or identify with or, or, mm-hmm. or deem, deem that you possess. You know that that that, that uh, losses weigh much more heavily on the mind than. Comparable gain. gains. So, like, like I, like, yeah. One example is like, if I have some mug I bought at Target for five bucks, and somebody says I'll give you ten dollars for that mug, you tend to say no, even though you go back and replace it for five dollars. I mean, this is you know, and and, right. and they've done the experiments that that neutralize the effect of how much trouble it would take you to get the mug and so on, but. Uh, now, does Kahneman mention loss aversion as one of the contributors to war? Uh, yeah, it, 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 I think he, I mean, it is a variant of loss aversion, which is sort of the, the sunk cost fallacy that, uh, you know, once you've, once you, once you've sunk some, some energy, effort, money, resources into something, you know, even though it, it looks like it's going pear shaped or going into the ditch, you're, 
because of that fallacy, you're not likely to let go uh, in in a sort of abort mission. Right. Um, it, it's psychologically more comfortable just to to stay stay the course in a way. This is you know use this as an example to explain how wars, in spite of uh, you know a lot of bad outcomes accruing, they they just can 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 trail on for a while. Right. We've invested this much in the Vietnam War. You know, um, yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is a classic, just in strictly economic terms, demonstrably fallacious thinking. I mean, I mean, but I, you know, I, I, I think I think about it in, you know, in terms of even what happened on the 6th of January, you know, with with, with yeah. that that storm of the Capitol. Uh, I, I do wonder whether th- that was an, a moment when a certain number of Trump's voters realized that they, they, they could cut bait because, it, you know, whatever they were seeing was, was, was so far beyond the pale of what, what they would, would stand for. Um, and and there, I know there's a lot of speculation out there. How big is this, is his, is his base at this point, given, given that, given that event? Um, and yeah, I, I and, wish, and all I, I can, re- all I can report from, from Maine, from the backwards of Maine is that, <laughs> That um, I have seen some Trump signs come down in my neighborhood, hmm. post, really, uh, just after after the sixth. Yeah, of course that may also be because on January sixth they did ratify the election results, and so it was no longer an election. You know, the the uh, you had to kind of. Throw, but it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the I wish um, the polls showed more in the way of uh, shifting opinion, but you got to remember. Um, I mean, there has been some, uh, you know, this is another just feature of the technological media landscape. People get uh, are getting entirely different pictures of the world. And, you know, there's also the fact that it's natural, just as it was natural for like people who supported the Black Lives Matter protests to say, wait a second, those the people doing the violence, the looters, the Antifa, they're not BLM. It is natural for Trump supporters to say, wait a second, you know, this was a subset of a subset. I mean, first of all, only the most intense Trump supporters went to the rally. Only a subset of them breached the Capitol barrier. Only a subset of them went into the Capitol, you know. So that's their, that's their, you know, narrative. And and it's an, it's a natural one. So you can, you can kind of see why maybe, uh, they would manage not to fundamentally, uh, revisit their, their feelings about uh, Trump himself. That's the way we tend to, you know, group, group allegiances tend to work. You, you, again, you kind of resist, you know, uh, in a way it's confirmation bias. I mean, we, we Trump supporters saw in those riots confirmation of, of bad things about what they, bad things they thought about Trump himself. A lot of Trump supporters um, managed to not do that for, for, for dynamics that, have affected for reasons of, you know, from, uh, of, of kind of, um, uh, because of cognitive dynamics that we've all been in this way of at one time or another. Um, this is so <laughs> life. <laughs> this is life. Um, just aware of the time too. Uh, yeah, it's been, this is an hour too, isn't it? Which is roughly our, uh, where we're the hard stop on, on that. Um, so, I think to to make make some notes for a future conversation um 
do you want to try to look at more closely? I mean, I would like to talk to you about the mindfulness piece and look more closely at how you you see uh, mindfulness helping to uh, to be to both late make clear these the 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 dynamics of these biases but also offer offer some sort of an antidote mm-hmm. um to them and i th- i think i think you and i have slightly divergent but not mutually uh exclusive um sort of a sense of how that happens or how that might happen um and uh, that could be related to the question of enlightenment that we were getting yeah at I, I think we should uh uh, yeah, both of those are natural things to talk about uh, in the future. I mean, I, again, I do think history has been pushing us to a point where we, in various senses, need to become either – we need to either become more enlightened in various senses or pay a steep price, possibly including uh, apocalypse, roughly speaking. Um, the uh, – Which – I, should, which I, should, I ju- Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how the subscriptions to your non-zero newsletter is, but <laughs> I remember before you named it that there was the two competing titles, right? There was non-zero news, newsletter and then the apocalypse avoidance newsletter. Aversion. A compete. So here was the, this is very funny. You should say that this actually is a coincidence. I didn't put you up to this, but uh, so newsletter which you can subscribe to either nonzero.org or or Google nonzero and Substack. Um. It's about to develop a paid edition of it that's going to come out a lot more often. And uh, I've just, over the last day or two, been writing uh, the explanation for this. It's going to go out in in the uh, newsletter this week and using the term Apocalypse Aversion Project to describe what the the mission is going to more self-consciously be going forward of the, of the newsletter. Um. So yes, I'm, well, the, I'm glad because I'm glad you to hear that because that was um, that was my vote last time you. I was did asked. you vote? Did you vote for Apocalypse Aversion Project? That's uh, good. Yeah, and or, do you know why though? Because of the double <laughs> entendre I, of aversion, or what? Um, yeah, no, no. I think it, I think it it um, it mobilizes loss aversion. Ah, well, yeah. I mean, this is this is the balance, though. You know. Between fear and hope as motivators or between, um, I mean, geez, I've been, you know, I've been listening. I, I try to stay in touch with the right wing ecosystem or the pro Trump ecosystem. Um, and I listen to these Steve Bannon, uh, podcasts and, uh, it's so much about fear and hate. Like, you know, depicting us as holding them in contempt and uh wanting only the worst for them and so on and it's an interesting and yet he's i mean he's a master demagogue you know he's a real kind of master rhetorician and he does have these inspirational um you know they're very kind of nationalistic inspirational kind of like this is you know 1776 you know this is um but that's a tough it's a tough balance. Um, I mean, my own actual belief is that apocalypse may be something of an overstatement, uh, but I think things could get really super bad if we don't wise up. And, um, you know, wising up is really hard. I'm not claiming I'm that great at it, uh, but uh, 
in my calmer moments, it seems to me clear what it would be. You know, uh, I mean, I could even argue that claiming not to be so wise is actually a, a, a an articulation of a kind of wisdom. <laughs> it's a, it's. I mean, it's a it's a uh, you humility know, I, uh, that or, that it that's important or an act. Yes, or a. <laughs> but um. Well, are the, you? <laughs> Uh, no, I just, uh, part of being cynical about human nature is, con- is assuming that much of, hu- much humility is false humility. Uh, and, <laughs> but, um, the, uh, um, no, I mean, I mean, th- this is part of, part of enlightenment is this all having more self-doubt. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to be like needlessly hard on yourself. You just want to have a certain periodic skepticism, a revisiting of the assumption that your intuitive perceptions are on target, you know. Right. And that, and that, you know, I think that's not comfortable. That's that, that whole project of, of questioning one's assumptions is just not comfortable. Well, plus you don't get social reinforcement for it. I mean, if you, if you go on Twitter and say things that your tribe, like you say, hey, folks, why don't we look at this from the point of view of Donald Trump supporters? You're going to get some negative reinforcement, even though what you're trying to say is like maybe, you know, maybe our perspective is a little warped and theirs is a little warped. Um, and that's the way people are. You know, you're not you're not saying you, you want to enact the Trump policy agenda or that you want him to succeed politically. But still, you don't get a lot of social reinforcement. And and, and, and that's a, a difficult thing in, uh, you know, in asking people to play a role in this, you know, play a productive role on social media. You're asking them to expose themselves to some negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, yeah, I, I think that I, I do wonder too how many people are just sort of um, how many how many more centrist folks are are are, are more or less uh, you know silent in in the respo- in the face of that potential. I think a blowback. lot, a lot. I mean, you even I think you saw this with the uh, the protests in the summer. You know, it's like you didn't you didn't see many people. Raising any kind of doubts about them. But then you'd talk to a fellow progressive and say, um, don't you think these could be like bad for us in the election if there's a sense of pervasive disorder or, you know, or any, any of several kinds of questions you could raise? Um, right. you'd hear, you'd, you'd, you'd get a lot of affirmation. It's just that people didn't want to say it, um, uh, publicly. Um, right. The, uh, you know, there that's, was that. That's just- I'm just thinking quickly. Go ahead. Go on. Okay, don't forget what you're going to say. I was just thinking the video of the the protesters who were in D.C. at one point going to people who were dining outdoors and demanding that they hold up their fists to indicate their solidarity with the protesters, which I find completely nauseating. The idea of any political group intimidating people into showing support for any political cause. And there was this one woman who was so courageous, she just refused to do it. And it wasn't that she wasn't on their side. 
She was just principled, and they they were in her face, and she was trying to explain. That took courage, but it also took courage to even on Twitter say, this is bad, folks, you know, if you're a progressive. There weren't all that many people initially even saying, hey, this is going too far, you know, because people considered it so, um, you know, kind of dangerous socially to express any form of disapproval with any subset of the protesters. Um, You know, if any, 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 any voicing of, of disapproval was tacit. Yeah. That's the way tribalism or white supremacy. Right. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that, that is the predicament we're in. And uh, (laughs) I hope we can continue to talk through uh, some solutions or potential solutions to the... I hope so. And I really appreciate you having uh, started this and indulging me. And uh, I think we should talk a little about your... Uh, I mean, I wondered, like, so your yoga, you you, you know, you have a very active yoga teaching um, enterprise. Uh, is the reason that you could so easily move to Maine because during the pandemic, it had ceased to be... You know, your, your, your clients or students, whatever you call them, you were no longer seeing them in person anyway. I mean, tell, first of all, tell people like, like your, your, where they can find your stuff. Like, um, your everyday sublime is your podcast and, uh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm always hesitant when you try to go this direction and chats. I, I don't really want to use our time to, to well, I'm to using the, our time to get my stuff out. Prom- Right, but that, but this is your channel, and I feel like it would it would reflect negatively on you to hear me kind of enter in with a, uh, a self promoting advertisement, like hey, you know. But yeah, no, I have a I have a podcast, um, but the kind of yoga I teach is actually is lends itself to mindfulness quite nicely, which is how I got into it. Actually, I, I basically just a little bit before you started doing retreats, I started going on retreats. And found my body, after doing other forms of yoga, my body was still really resistant to sitting for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So I started looking around for how to sit more comfortably and discovered a style of yoga that really tries to release tension um, and contracture. What's it called? It, it, it's called yin yoga, yeah. in, in contrast to active dynamic forms of yang yoga. And um, you basically stay in a pose on the floor for several minutes and, and hang out, relaxing the muscles so that the, the, the denser... Connective tissues like ligaments and joint capsular tissue gets gently stressed to the point of releasing some contracture so that there's a little bit more built, not like hypermobility, but a little bit more mobility uh, or restoration of mobility there so that one, if someone has the skeletal permission to do so, one would be able to uh, sit more comfortably in in one of the classical Mm. meditation poses. And I found that to be true. I kind of got hooked and it became a, a sort of a platform for me to try to share more about insights from meditation in a yoga context in a way that I, like most yoga teachers can't because quite frankly, a lot of contemporary yoga is just, um, is just part of like a, a fitness movement. Uh, it's just, it's, it's an exercise or a workout where people are put through their paces and there's not a lot of ch- time or opportunity to get into the contemplative, uh, introspective, uh, hmm. inner dynamic awareness of, of the practice. So that's how I got into it. Um, and it, 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 I think it, it, it fits well with what you're talking about because it, it's a practice that, um, really does, uh, emphasize quite strongly an, an exploration of feelings. You know, 
at, at a level yeah. of sensation. Yeah. And, and, um, and it sort of be serves as a meditation and also prepares one for meditation. Well, maybe I so should that's... get into that more. I mean, my, my daily meditation practice is suffering from the pandemic in the sense that I've traditionally gotten like about an annual, roughly speaking, booster of going to an actual meditation retreat for mm-hmm. a week or two. And, uh, that hasn't been practical. So, uh, God knows I need something. Uh, maybe, uh, you, you should become my spiritual advisor. So what, do you have like a website or something? <laughs> it's my name, joshsummers.net, but there you I, go. I, I, def- I, I, def- I will de- uh, decline the, op- the, <laughs> the opportunity to be your spiritual advisor. My spiritual advisor? Your- How about life coach? No? Okay. Um, <laughs> so that's why uh, I'm here talking to you, Bob. You're my, oh, advisor. that's right. I forgot. I'm the guru. Whoops. Got us mixed up. Yep. Um, okay. So anyway, thanks. So we'll do this again. Uh, Thank until you. we've gotten to the bottom of this whole mess. Um, and meanwhile, getting there. thank you for this. Enjoy Maine. Uh, Thank you. It, it looks nice. Very much. Okay. See Talk ya. to you soon.